Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is part two of The Way of the Wolf. If you haven't already heard the previous episode, I recommend that you have a listen now. We're discussing the complex relationship martial artists have with predatory behaviour, having deconstructed Gavin de Becker's survival signals as a means for teaching effective ways to identify a violent and or sexual predator This episode delves deeper into the way certain sales techniques and business motivation strategies encourage predatory philosophies. In turn, these aggressive hard-sell ideas have been adopted by martial artists to recruit and profit from their students. As I said in the previous episode, this is a huge topic that cannot be completely covered on these shows. My intention with these podcasts was to make them largely episodic by nature but it appears that this particular subject for this year's season will be the first to go beyond a two-parter. However, even then I cannot do such a deep and important topic justice within my limited time frame. Therefore, as I said before, I intend to go into more detail in my upcoming Bullshit Zoo and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work series of books. Please view this particular series as an informal entry point. I hope you enjoy the show. According to the magical realism of Angela Carter, the wolf is carnivore incarnate. Perhaps the greatest short story writer of the latter half of the 20th century, Carter was keen to explore both the predatory dangers and empowerment offered by the wolf metaphor. In her famous werewolf tale that became the centre of the screenplay she wrote with Neil Jordan, A Company of Wolves, she explains that, compared to all the other antagonists of folk tales, the wolf is worse for he cannot listen to reason. The story and film offers us with one of her most famous quotes. The worst wolves are those who are hairy on the inside. At the end of her translation of Charles Pierrot's 17th century retelling of the Little Red Riding Hood children's cautionary folk tale, she writes her own moral to explain the allegorical nature of the tale. And after a short paragraph on the most obvious message being taught regarding the dangers of young girls being approached by strangers, she further elaborates, leaving no room for ambiguity. Quote, Now there are real wolves, with hairy pelts and enormous teeth, but also wolves that seem perfectly charming, sweet-natured and obliging, who pursue girls in the street and pay them the most flattering attentions. Unfortunately, these smooth-tongued, smooth-pelted wolves are the most dangerous wolves of all. End quote. The dots do not need to be linked between these colourful passages and Gavin de Becker's warning signals outlined in the previous episode. Carter and the many folktale authors that lived before her understood the devious nature of the human predator. My mother, who was my earliest teacher on awareness, was born into a family of wild animal trainers. Living on a travelling circus, it was very important that children were taught to be switched on early on in their lives. There were dangers all around them. One of her words of wisdom was, A tiger will always be a tiger. The all-welcoming multiculture of the circus regularly suffered from nefarious fellow humans who exploited this open little society. No other creature on the planet is more devious and false than a predatory human. Angela Carter also understood there was a natural human attraction to these predatory traits. Indeed, her feminist Red Riding Hood heroines of two of her stories end up embracing the wolfishness of the werewolves they face. 
Both girls are skilled in using knives. One hacks off the paw of the werewolf that attacks her, a wound that will later reveal the creature's alias to be none other than the girl's grandmother. In an act of predatory dominance, this girl has the villagers slay her grandmother when she takes over her cottage and prospers. The other Red Riding Hood accepts the death of her devout grandmother at the hands of the man-wolf, who now occupies her bed, and decides to cast off her own innocence in favour of joining him as an equal partner. In the last episode, we discussed how some salesmanship ethics echo the tactics used by human predators. We also looked at the fact that salesmanship is often at the root of the self-help movement, which has had over a century of synergistically developing alongside mainstream martial arts. From the cultural drive in some countries to rebrand their fighting systems as methods of self-improvement, to the teaching of corporate executives to smash wooden boards with martial arts techniques as a team-building exercise, we can see that the two have enjoyed a cross-pollinating relationship. Martial artists tell their students to read such self-help bestsellers as The Secret and encourage them to attend Tony Robbins seminars, while self-help gurus repay the compliment by using martial arts tropes. Now, we will move on to the odd cognitive dissonance that many modern-day martial artists adopt when they teach self-protection and run their business. The inspiration for this particular episode came from my witnessing the response of several martial arts teachers to the 2013 movie The Wolf of Wall Street. Martin Scorsese's biopic of real-life stockbroker scammer Jordan Belfort was a commercial and critical success. However, some viewers criticised its equivocal moral message. Based on Belfort's memoirs, the film is told completely from the titular Wolf's point of view. His philosophy is set in the first scene, where a senior stockbroker mentors Belfort in that his job is not to look after the customer's best interests, but to screw them for as much money as they can. Throughout the movie, Belfort embodies this principle, showing nothing but predatory contempt as he defrauds investors into buying penny stocks. As he grows his stockbroking team, he creates an aggressive culture of greed and competition that he labels the wolf pit. This consists of conning people out of their life savings and celebrating with ever more excessive drug-infused, venereal disease-riddled parties. Many of my fellow martial arts instructors were blown away by the film. I concur that it was an entertaining piece. I like Scorsese's work, and this was no exception. In the mould of Brian De Palma's remake of Scarface, the film took you on a romp through the life of an opportunistic predator with few scruples who used his wit and ruthless nature to climb to the top. Ultimately, his sins and personality are his undoing, and he suffers the consequences. The film consists of the usual dosage of artistic license we have come to expect of any Hollywood biopic. That is after we have to consider Belfort's own controversial retelling of events that have been hotly contested by his contemporaries, including the man who successfully prosecuted him, Joel M. Cohen. For example, there is no evidence that Belfort was ever known as the Wolf of Wall Street until after he began writing his book. Nevertheless, despite the charm and depth that Leonardo DiCaprio infuses in the character of Belfort, I do not think the romanticised film helps cast him in a particularly admirable light. As a cinematic character, Belfort's feature film persona comes over as charismatic, cunning, charming and thoroughly reprehensible. He is the Ted Bundy of the stock market. On a personal note, I don't like my adult film spoon-feeding me what is right and what is wrong. Tell the story, any story, and I can draw my own opinion. Adults appreciating art don't need to be shown why the moral compass should be. They should have their own. The more open-ended the message and ideas, the better. Take the movie adaptations of the stage plays Quills and Doubt as good examples. 
The real Balfour was imprisoned and ordered to pay restitution to the victims of his scam, which incidentally weren't all rich, but not before he worked for months with Joel M. Cohen in ratting out all his colleagues. In order to reduce a possible 25-year sentence, Balfour and his partner, Danny Porush, agreed to wear wires for the prosecution team to bring charges against their various friends in the pump-and-dump penny stock scamming culture. Far from sticking it to the man and standing by his fellow thieves, to quote Cohen, when their days of reckoning came, Mr. Balfour and Mr. Porish didn't stand up against law enforcement, but rather caved quickly agreeing to cooperate against virtually everyone close to them. These days, Balfour, who still owes millions in restitution, has become a successful motivational speaker. He fits the self-help mould Steve Salerno labels the contrepreneur. Here the sales pitch is that the ways of the wolf are now being supposedly taught for virtuous reasons. Contrepreneurs typically attract attention by allowing their customers to be both titulated by their dark paths, the taboo of breaking the law has always been attractive, and also feel good about celebrating redemption, another consistently popular narrative we can see a parallel in martial arts subculture. Martial arts are born out of violence. Putting aside the respected professional institutes that manage violence, the military, the police and the private security sector, the 1990s saw a growing view that the ways of the criminal were part of reality-based self-defence education. Certainly, my wake-up call in martial arts came from those who adapted their skills when straddling the lines of the law. Although at the time it seemed like heresy, there was nothing new in martial artists drawing experience and knowledge from the criminal world. For example, some of the most famous traditional Chinese martial arts exponents were notorious bandits. It makes logical sense that in order to learn how to defeat a predator, one needs to understand their ways and also how to turn some of their tactics against them. However, there are distinctly different motivations and drivers between an individual that goes out to commit a crime of violence and an individual who trains to neutralise that violence. I am often asked whether I've been concerned that the students who come to train with me would use their skills to assault people. Although this is a risk any self-defence or martial arts teacher takes, my argument is that all of the tactics are strictly informed by their context. Hard skills are all based on the pretext that they are neutralising a violent situation. For example, tactical escape and evasion skills are drilled into students early on. The preemptive strike, for all its infamy, is perhaps one of the most clearly defined defensive skills taught. A student learns to use the fence to protect their personal space in a non-aggressive way. Although we call it a preemptive strike, it is actually a reaction to an individual physically confirming they mean to be violent. They breach the line being set by a passive hand gesture. Nevertheless, this concern is definitely warranted and is relevant to the topic I'm discussing. As my episode The Order of St Guinefor puts it, many a wolf has infiltrated the ranks of the sheepdogs. Any number of the techniques taught within the in-fight part of self-defence or within the context of a combat sport could be, and have been, applied by a violent criminal. However, perhaps the area we should be more mindful of are the soft skills. In order to better prepare students for self-defence situations, we often employ a lot of role-play work, and this part has to be as realistic as possible. Good self-protection students and teachers need to get into the mind of the predator in order to counter their manipulation tactics. In essence, they learn how to be manipulators and it is little surprising that such individuals would be lured towards studies on manipulating human behaviour in order to profit. Blend this with the long-standing historic relationship between self-help and martial arts and we can see why an individual who originally set out to learn how to protect him or herself begins to adopt the ways of the predator. 
Before we move further into this, I wish to state that I'm being careful not to paint the world of self-help, salesmanship and business motivation with too broad a brush. One student of mine, who said he had worked for a Tony Robbins franchise, recommended me the book Influence, Science and Practice by Robert B. Cialdini. Unlike the vast majority of self-help books on the market, Cialdini's work is not snake oil. Cialdini is a respected professor of psychology and marketing who backs up his statements with peer-reviewed scientific research. He's been credited with predicting the success of permission marketing, which many consider to be one of the most ethical forms of advertising. Having said that, one might also view opt-in marketing, where a prospect is convinced to choose to receive promotional material on goods and services, to be a type of honey trap. This Hansel and Gretel method for snaring people deserves a podcast and or essay of its own. As the title of Cialdini's book suggests, it looks at the many ways we're influenced. It is the exemplification of double-edged sword, self-protection, education. The work is as much a valuable tool for both the aspiring salesperson as it is for individuals wishing to build up a strong mental defence to influencers, making it a perfect resource for the amoral predator. One wonders how any of Jordan Belfort's hard-sell tactics that are at the core of his philosophy could be converted to the light side of the force, so to speak. Since his release from prison and new life as a motivational speaker, Belfort marketed his approach as the straight-line persuasion method. Wing Chung and Sing Yi practitioners will immediately understand the method's veneration of the straight line as the quickest route to any destination concept. The idea is that the seller is trying to take the prospect to the point of sale as quickly as possible. Modern self-defence and combatives practitioners will appreciate the minimalistic advocacy of this approach. Belfort divides his approach into three areas, influence, persuasion and sales. His three tenets are developing rapport with a customer, asking specific questions to gather intelligence and understand the customer's needs, controlling the sale by keeping it on the straight line, Every time the customer tries to take the conversation away from the sale by talking about something irrelevant, you quickly bring it right back. Belfort preaches the importance of not wasting time with non-buyers. He understands that certain people are never going to buy a product and there is no point in using your sales script, a tool that is fundamental to his cold sales technique, on them. That sounds fair and ethical enough until you consider two assumptions made by followers of the straight-line persuasion method. Firstly, Belfort has it that in any given room of 100 people, only 10 of them are really non-buyers, often individuals just dragged along by their buying friends or family. The rest should be considered buyers of different levels of urgency. These range from those ready to buy now to browsers who might buy on another occasion. Although Belfort tells his acolytes they shouldn't worry if they don't close the sale and only be concerned if that customer buys off someone else, he clearly pushes the view that most people targeted are likely to be buyers. Identifying non-buyers might be the equivalent to predators identifying hard targets. Predators and Belfort sellers are opportunistic. Secondly, Belfort teaches his salespeople to overcome objections. He lists several concerns a prospect might raise which he believes are stalling tactics 90% of the time. Such tactics can be best overcome by countering them early on, according to Belfort, and he encourages his sellers to adopt a friendly tone. This is all about building rapport, where they come over as being empathetic and trustworthy, that they have the customer's best interests at heart, and that they care. This is all coaching and manipulation. By pointing out the importance of tonality, Belfort wants his sellers to be good actors. Let us not forget serial killer Ted Bundy became very adept in this department. He was so good at building rapport with people that he became a very effective volunteer for a crisis centre's suicide hotline. 
Belfort sellers are not being taught empathy in the warm way, rather more a cold, calculated, outside view. They're not trustworthy. They don't have the customer's best interests at heart, and they do not care. This is all an act to get the sale. Likewise, the deceptive predator cares nothing for their victim's welfare. His various tactics being used to build rapport are all a ruse to enable him to commit his crime against them. You can see why Belfort's techniques are a system of persuasion. The backbone of persuasion is persistence and it all comes clothed in charm. Psychopathic predators understand this method all too well. I've so far held back from using the term psychopath, but now it is probably as good a time as ever to discuss its place. It's also at this point that I wish to reference The Wisdom of Psychopaths, a book written by Dr Kevin Dutton, a researcher for Oxford University's Department of Experimental Psychology. In the book, Dutton interviewed Jim Corey, Vice President of the US National Association of Chiefs of Police, who explained that psychopathic serial killers generally exhibit persuasiveness along with a grandiose sense of self-worth, superficial charm, ruthlessness, lack of remorse and the ability to manipulate others. Corey further remarks that this is one of the main points in Dutton's book, that these traits are commonly shared by politicians and world leaders. Dutton's preface to The Wisdom of Psychopaths begins with a description of his father as a psychopathic market trader, charming, fearless and ruthless, never violent but possessing as much conscience as, quote, Jeffrey Dahmer's cool box, unquote. Human predators, particularly those that show calculating cunning and appear to lack a moral compass, are often considered to be psychopathic by nature. It might be argued that the methods advocated by Jordan Belfort and other motivational speakers who come under the empowerment category of self-help and particularly those that teach an aggressive sales technique might be utilising the habits of the psychopath. Kevin Dutton also reported on an interesting piece of information that has been prompted by a claim made by Ted Bundy and should directly inform self-protection teaching. Bear in mind that an important lesson of Jordan Belfort's straight-line persuasion method is to learn how to identify non-buyers. As I said, this can be likened to victim selection. Ted Bundy claimed that he could spot a good victim simply by the way she walked. Dutton reports in The Wisdom of Psychopaths that in 2009 Angela Book decided to put this boast to the test. Book conducted an experiment using Michael R. Levinson's self-report psychopathy scale and an observation test. Levinson's scale was created in 1995 and is a questionnaire designed to measure an individual's psychopathic traits for research purposes. Angela Book tested 47 male undergraduates at Brock University, Canada. She then videoed the gait of a further 12 volunteers who were requested to fill out a simple demographics questionnaire containing only two questions. 1. Have you been victimised in the past? Yes or no? And two, if yes, how many times has such victimisation occurred? Next, she had her original 47 undergraduates examine the video footage and have them score 1 to 10 how vulnerable they believe these 12 people were to being mugged. Bundy's scary assertion held up to the test. Those undergraduates who had scored high on the psychopath scale identified the victims. This footage was then taken to a maximum security centre and put before clinically diagnosed psychopaths. Not only did these individuals identify the victims, they went one stage further and they explicitly stated the vulnerability was revealed in the way that the participants walked. This brings us back to Belfort's buyers and non-buyers. Predators are opportunistic. Psychopaths are hardwired to spot the vulnerable. Target hardening is a very important aspect of self-protection and yet again reinforces the importance of attitude over all other soft skills. 
The fifth season of the popular TV crime series Dexter featured, as its main antagonist, a motivational speaker. This individual, who interestingly went by the name Jordan Chase, promoted a highly aggressive empowerment style of self-help while secretly commanding a cult of raping, torturing, murdering acolytes. At the heart of Chase's approach is his best-selling book, Take It Now, which encourages people to take whatever it is they think they deserve. Although this is melodrama, the writers clearly had a satirical eye on the world of Tony Robbins's style of self-help and the consequences of when empowerment turned into macho entitlement. Connecting self-help culture with crimes committed by criminals and their acolytes is not a tall story. During one of his many lengthy incarcerations and before he founded The Family and ordered the murders that would earn him infamous legend, Charles Manson was a student of one of the founding fathers of modern self-help and motivational speaking, Dale Carnegie. Manson took Carnegie's course, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and obsessively read his book of the same name. According to Jeff Gunn's biography, Manson, His Life and Crimes, the future cult leader obsessively reread Chapter 7 of Carnegie's book, Let the Other Person Feel That the Idea Is His or Hers. Throughout Manson's free life, his most prominent job role was as a pimp, and that is pretty much the way he ran his mainly female cult when he was released into the 1960s America and the Age of Aquarius. Combining his lifetime experience of street smarts, his career of running prostitutes, and his studious education in Carnegie's book on manipulation, Charles Manson was able to view hippie culture as a golden opportunity. He took advantage of the wayward teens, the trendy rebels, the middle-class runaways and the unconfident misfits, made them feel special and gave them a cause. He used his knowledge of sex work and drugs as a means for manipulating free love culture. According to witnesses and the many people who knew the man, he was a softly spoken seducer. Such a description ties in well with this particular principle of Carnegie's approach. Manson encouraged a very friendly atmosphere in his commune, pimping out his devoted followers and even pimping out himself to win influence. He made a few curious celebrity friends. Manson might be better described as being more of an ant spider than a wolf in his methods. Like these species of spider, he hung out with his prey, pretending to be one of them, be it hippie culture or celebrity musicians, in order to better employ his own predatory impulses. Yet again, we see the methods of rapport building, the ways of the devious predator, and the strategic salesperson. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with using a popular idea to sell one service or product, but the 60s, 70s and 80s saw the rise of many fraudulent martial artists promising far more than they could deliver. A second historical wave of Orientalism allowed many a snake oil martial artist to make promises of teaching death touches and various other nonsense to youngsters caught up in the Kung Fu boom and the Ninja boom. Whereas many martial artists have worked hard to make a healthy separation of martial arts entertainment and actual martial arts, there have been, and there remain to be, many others that are happy to more than muddy the waters in order to gain cult followings and or make a quick buck. For all of Jordan Belfort's talk about learning to respect customers since his period of incarceration, the straight-line persuasion method is still predatory in nature. When martial arts teachers adopted into their philosophy, they are contradicting what they teach to their students. The seller is encouraged to box the prospect in, making it impossible for them to say no. Gavin De Becker's survival signals should be ringing in your ears now with the same urgency as the bell for the final round of a fight.
The Art of Survival is an exciting eight-week pilot project launched at the Concord Centre Hackney in April to engage youth culture in important life lessons. Each Thursday evening, 11 to 17-year-old children and teenagers will be actively involved in workshops designed to educate and inspire them to handle street life and keep away from crime. Workshops will include danger awareness lessons and talks given by individuals who have grown up in underprivileged environments where a life of crime was a standard future but chose to become engaged in productive careers. I've been invited to teach my two-hour version of when parents aren't around young person self-protection seminar on thursday the 25th of april please check my show notes for details don't forget i'll be dropping in extra unofficial podcast episodes throughout this year's run there are already a couple up there for you to check out thanks again everyone for your support with the show please don't forget to follow me on facebook twitter youtube and now instagram as well as check out the clubcarmira.com website there is new content going up there all the time please send in feedback and like share and subscribe to support my work In the next episode, we'll explore the wolf-predator metaphor more and its relationship with martial arts subculture. You will note that I didn't answer the first question I posed at the end of last episode's outro. I promise next episode we'll handle the infamous lions, tigers, wolves and circuses quote. We'll also continue with an examination of the way predatory martial arts businesses work and how teachers use their unfair advantage to turn on their students. I look forward to presenting to you the concluding part of The Way of the Wolf. Thanks for listening. Oh. Uh-huh.